So come, whether you have much faith or little, have tried to follow or are afraid you failed. Come, because it is his will that those who want to meet him might meet him here. Welcome to From the Narthex, a podcast about faith, life, and Anglicanism. This is your host, Ryan, and today on the pod, we have some special guests with us. A few weeks ago, we did a special episode on vestments with Joanne and I, and um, it turns out that vestments are something that Anglicans care quite a lot about. And so uh, we've decided to do a follow-up episode because, well, there was interest. And we've got on today with us the Reverends Rachel Twig and Andrew Rampton from here in the Diocese of Rupert's Land. And what we're going to do today is kind of, um, I think all of us here have different experiences with vestments. Uh, I know some of us are kind of cradle Anglicans. Some of us kind of came into the Anglican tradition later in life. Some of us spent time in other church traditions first and then moved over. So we all have kind of like a slightly different route into this wonderfully weird world of church clothes. And what we're going to kind of do is go around and talk about our experiences wearing vestments, seeing vestments. um, And hopefully this can kind of like give you a bit of a bird's eye view about the, the, the multiplicity and the diversity of vestments that can maybe expand your horizons a bit more beyond what Joanne and I were able to do a couple of weeks ago. So with that in mind, Joanne, as um, the ranking lay member on, on this podcast. <laughs> the uh, ranking lay member. That's a good title. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, Rector's Warden, that's pretty impressive. Um, <laughs> Would you would you would you share with us a little bit about what kind of vestments have you worn uh, at church? Well, I guess I'm also the nearly cradle Anglican. Maybe that's my portion as well. So my experience with vestments has always just been what I've witnessed um, being at church from I would think like we probably started going to church when I was about four years old. So the first vestment I ever wore was this horribly, um, nearly electrically lime green, it's hard to describe the color, polyester um, robe that we used to wear whenever we would serve um, in church when I was younger. So probably about seven or eight years old, I think. Yeah, that would have been my very first vestment that I ever personally wore. Lime green. They are still at the church, so I will pull one out of the sacristy closet for you. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll have to point. share that on our Instagram, maybe, <laughs> a picture of that. I will also share the Instagram photo from the archives of me in it. Nice. Um, yeah, so that was my very first vestment. Awful thing. Um, and then as a lay reader, um, probably I became a lay reader in my teenage years. Um, just a very simple alb um, that we have at St. Thomas and a cincture, so which is a lot like a rope. And then we have this tradition in Rupert's Land for a long time that you would get these little medallions. Oh, yeah. So that's yeah. my jo- one. Joanne's holding up her, her uh, <laughs> medallion, her lay reader's medallion. Yes. So that's from a long time ago, but kind of cool. And that's really yes. the only vestments I've ever worn. I've just seen a lot of things, and I have a lot of interest in this sort of type of, you know, hey, remember that nerdy church thing. So I'm really excited to learn a lot today um, about 
what you guys have worn and seen. So, so just before we move on, uh, do you have any idea why they were this like brilliant lime green, these early robes you wore? I have no clue. Um, just like a vestry decision that like, this is the color the youth are going to wear. And that's that. I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to call some of those elders up and say, why this green? Why? <laughs> Not amazing. even like a nice, you know, proper green that we're used to in the church. It was just this awful thing. Like, oh my goodness. <laughs> you can't convey color through sound. I'm trying though. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you were able to get one of those medallions because uh, I got made a lay reader without any ceremony whatsoever. I, I signed my name to a document and they sent it off to the diocese and they said, okay, now you're serving at the next service. Um, so I've never once seen one of those medallions. And I was kind of caught off, uh, off guard when I was living in the UK and uh, the lay readers very prominently were wearing their their medallions and and like kind of commanded this respect of like oh I've been through this training and I was like oh really I, I signed a form <laughs> so you know things things are different around the communion that's for sure Andrew um tell me well first off I think you uh kind of made your way into Anglicanism a little bit later in life yeah uh, where did where did you start out I started out um growing up in rural Manitoba in the way that most rural Manitobans belong to the United Church of Canada, whether they attend or not. That's just oh, yeah. sort of the default on the prairies. Yeah. Um, I, can, I can remember going a handful of times, usually because I was playing the piano for something, um, but not out of any uh, personal religious commitment. That right. was definitely not the thing. Um, so I ended up uh, in my early 20s, I was studying music, um, and the singing um, teacher that I had is also an organist and invited me to join the church choir at the parish that he was working at because singing in a choir is good for you as a musician, um, and who knows. Um, so, uh, so there I went, um, and it was my first exposure to any kind of um, intentionally liturgical tradition, which was really interesting. And it meant that my first Sunday in church, um, somebody threw a blue polyester robe and a surplice on me um, and told me to walk in the procession because you're doing the thing in the choir, right? Right. Um, and, and so I had never seen uh, the interior of the church until I was processing up and down the aisles and going to sit in one of the choir stalls. Okay, um, so they, they gave you clothes, just like in the Bible, where you get handed clothes when you come to the, the feast, they handed yeah. you clothes to wear into church. Yeah, yeah. Here, this is what you wear. Um, and it, so it was my first exposure to this breadth of Anglican tradition, which, other than my personal experience, I think is a really important point. Um, whenever there's a conversation about how do Anglicans do X, the answer is, probably almost any way that you can imagine um, because it's a tradition with a long inheritance uh, that has spread all over the world. And whenever you take a tradition around the world, it enculturates, right? So Anglicanism in North America doesn't quite look like Anglicanism in the UK and doesn't look like Anglicanism in Africa or India or anywhere else. Um, so, you know, people talk about the way Anglicans do X um, and with 10 minutes of Googling, you can come up with 30 contrary examples because 
Right. Because apparently that's how we do. Um, anyway, so that first morning in church was uh, the beginning of a journey that I did not anticipate. Um, I always tell people that don't worry, joining the choir and then becoming the organist does not necessarily lead to the priesthood. Those are... That's a, <laughs> That's a particular choose-your-own-adventure that I came up with. You, you don't have to follow. Um, but um, And it so happens that I'm now the priest in that parish where I went on my first Sunday in church, which is also not necessarily how you have to do things. It's just how it worked out for me. Um, so over my life, I have been a chorister, an organist, a choir director, a subdeacon, a deacon, a priest, um, a lay reader in 13 different communities in two different dioceses in the Anglican Church of Canada. Um, and whenever you go to a new place and you get some role, uh, they give you the clothes, right? It's like, here, this is, this is what you wear when we do this. Um, so, okay. So, so if I could, if I could just, uh, if I could just interrupt back to the, your very first Sunday, when yeah. you got handed, you said blue coral robes yep. and a surplice. Now, yeah. what, what are these blue coral robes? Cause I think we talked about in our last episode, like kind of typically you'd wear a cassock, which is just kind of like old timey street clothes uh, right. and then a surplice over top, which I'm not sure what that, I can't really remember. These things don't stick in my brain. Um, but if you could just talk about what what is this coral robes uh, that you wore? Is it like a cassock? And and why would you put a surplus over top of that to cover up the nice blue? And why yeah. were they blue? Yeah, dark blue. Um, so the coral robes, at least uh, in that church, are uh, basically Anglican cassocks. So there's more than one kind of cassock. Um, there's the, the single-breasted kind that has a long row of buttons down the middle um, right. and might have fancy cuffs and stuff on it, but um, which is a Roman-style cassock. The Anglican-style cassock is a double-breasted robe that usually fastens up at your shoulders, so there's a button on either side and maybe one halfway down on the side to keep the, the front panel from opening. Um, and there's often a button sort of in the middle at your breastbone so that you can hang your academic hood from it because... Um, Many Anglican communities, for some reason, cannot detach the academy from the church. Uh, they are, which, in a church that is heavily invested in collegiate chapels in its origins, kind of makes sense, right? There's a, there's a good reason for that. Um, so the choir robes that I wore my first Sunday were a dark blue version of this double-breasted thing that went over the front. Um, I think they're blue, I don't know, maybe because blue makes people happy, but I think it's, they also typically, uh, in my experience, choirs want to avoid black cassocks because they don't want anyone to think they're pretending to be clergy, and clergy right. wear black. Right. Um, so you, some places wear blue, some places wear red, apparently some places wear electric green, you know, what, <laughs> like, whatever. Uh, <laughs> whatever. Um, and then the surplus is a long white thing that goes over the top of the other stuff that you're wearing. Um, depending on who the surplus was made for and who's wearing it now, um, they fit differently. Um, the, uh, in quotes, traditional cut is an almost ankle length thing with long flowy sleeves. 
Um, if you are a tall person wearing a surplice that was cut for a short person, it, they don't fit quite like that. But right. that's how that goes. Um, the, so the surplice is your baptismal gown. So oh, I don't yeah. know if you got one when you were baptized, Joanne, if anybody put you in a christening gown. Yeah, so <laughs> the surplice that you put on or an alb or a kata are all different evolutions of your christening gown. And then when you die and we put a white pall on your coffin, that's your christening gown one more time. Um, so it's the, the thing that you wear to church for your whole life is the... So, so we really like that kind of passage in, in, Revela in the book of Revelation where like... Uh, everybody gets these white gowns. Yeah. The martyrs get the white gown. That, it really, we really kind of like took that to heart, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there are churches in some parts of the world, um, Ethiopia, I think, where everybody who goes to church wears a white robe on Sunday morning, the whole congregation, because these are the, like you just said, Ryan, these are the clothes you were given when you came to the feast. So you wear them when you come to the feast. Right. That's, right. Uh, so I have um, a number of neighbors in my neighborhood who are Ethiopian. And if I am up very early on Sunday, I see them piling into cars and everybody's wearing long white, white outfits, usually embroidered with crosses and Christian symbols. Cool. Um, so, yeah, that was so my when you, get up. When you, were made, uh, when you were made organist after that, did your, did your uh, costume change or was it more or less the same? Almost the same, except that my surplus as an organist um, became one where the sleeves are cut. They aren't whole. They're cut with a slit that sort of marks your armpit so that when you lift your arms to play, your sleeves aren't catching on the organ console. You lift your arms uh, and the sleeves stay hanging right. um, just so that you're not tripping yourself up. But it's still a surplus. It just has more fancy tailoring. Nice. Okay, well, before we get to what you wear now, I want to jump over to uh, uh, Rachel and and just hear about, I think uh, you come from like a tradition that, at least as far as I know, isn't super into vestments originally. Uh, so just like tell us about how kind of like, well, first how you came to the Anglican Church and um, and then like what your kind of like first thought of these vestment things were. Um. So I'm a, a lifer in the Christian church, but different uh, traditions, different, you know, flavors of that. And to simplify, I mostly grew up because we moved a lot going to Mennonite evangelical style churches. So I would argue there was some degree of a uniform or vestments happening, but you were pulling them more out of your regular closet. But like everybody knew to wear like their nice dress and not too yes. short or like there was some rules around what you wore to church, um, but not in the same way as, for example, the Anglican church. I then became a pastor in the Mennonite Brethren Church, which I did for about mm, 16 years or so before beginning the process of becoming an Anglican priest. But simultaneously, while serving as a Mennonite brethren pastor, I also started going to an Anglican church. I would, um, the church that I go to and currently work at meets Sunday evening, so it was possible to do both. So if I if you start trying to add up all the numbers, I sound a lot older than I actually am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she looks very youthful. Uh. <laughs> but I pastored in the Mennonite brethren church for about 16 years, and I've been going to an Anglican church for about 
15 and most of those overlapped in one way or another. So my first experience of leading corporate worship was not in a church that had traditional uh, like Anglican style vestments. So I had to figure out what to wear for myself, Mm -hmm. which included the added complication of everything assumed a male body. And not that all male bodies are identical, but there are some key differences. So (laughs) just like, like for one, one example, the very first time I was given a microphone to wear, it was a little lapel mic and I couldn't clip it on the shirt I was wearing properly because my buttons are the opposite way. And it didn't, it didn't swirl. So like when I click nowadays, they're kind of like, they're a little gender neutral, but like the microphone was pointing down instead of up. And there was not much we could do about that uh, naturally. I had to make sure I had pockets, like the microphones assume pockets, a belt, all these kinds of things. So I had a degree of having to deal with none of this was made for me right. and being a, being looked at. And not that every single person was being nasty and judgment, judgmental, but I was very aware every time I put on clothes, like my skirt better not be too short. If I'm going to move my hands when I'm preaching, I better make sure nothing like th- like there's nothing showing. And so I had a lot of thought put into my clothes, but I still had to go out and then pick my own clothing right. to try to match. So, so in a sense, in a sense, you were you kind of like guessing on what the social expectations were, but it was like largely these kind of unspoken social rules rather than any kind of like theological account of what you should wear to church or was that operating as well? I think there was a lot of theological pieces as well in the sense of, um, modesty culture, purity culture, which does come from a theology, different kinds of expectations too around, um, you don't want to be so much at the Rachel show that you forget that you're at church. Like there are pros and cons to all of these things, right? Like if you spend the whole time, like only thinking about what the pastor is wearing and not what they're saying, somewhere along the line, someone has missed the mark in that process. Anyway, so then I started to be part of an Anglican church and I would participate in worship as a lay person wearing whatever I'd worn to church. I preached in street clothes, all of that kind of things. But then sometimes I gradually started to be invited to wear different pieces of vestment, vestiture, and uh, got used to like seeing different things and using different things in worship. And we can talk, we're going to talk a little bit about what I actually wear now and that kind of thing in a minute. But what I'll just say is that when I put on different kinds of clothing, so when I get up in the morning, I could wear a sweater and sweatpants or whatever, or I could put on a clerical collar. I could put on a cassock because it's really just like a coat to wear to go out in everyday life. And when I put on those things, I personally am reminded of my role. I'm I don't become holier, but I'm more aware of who I am and how I present. Um, if I'm wearing those things, I should be extra careful to be nice to the clerk at the grocery store, for example. And when I put on the additional layers of clothing that I wear when I'm leading in liturgy, something does happen to me. Like I become more aware of the role. I don't stop being me, but some part of me disappears a little bit more into the role and into the job. And the clothes which are not just like a costume to change my character, but they do remind me of the role and help me, I think, like live into that role in a more full and authentic way. 
and frankly, they're big and baggy and flowy. And so I'm not really worried about anybody seeing what I'm wearing. <laughs> like, hey, or like hey. I'm not like, I don't have that same, like people are scrutinizing my clothes in yeah. quite the same way as I used to, which is freeing for me having had both experiences. Nice. So nice. I, I feel like there's, I feel like there's a whole other episode in here about how vestments can contribute to body positivity or something like that. But <laughs> yep. Rachel just gave me like the biggest moment of gratitude because I realized that I didn't have to grow up with that as an adolescent at all. And for sure, like I'm aware of what you were saying in terms of like my professional life in terms of what you're wearing what people think that you're wearing but I never had to deal with that at church and what a blessing that I never realized I had so thank you for that you're welcome <laughs> yeah that is a gift um all right so uh both Rachel and Andrew you are uh both priests now and um are I think you both serve in churches where a certain level of vestiture is that the right word uh, is kind of expected. Uh, that's kind of like the culture to wear a certain amount of that. I think generally speaking, our diocese, um, you're, it's somewhere in the middle, would you say? Like we don't have a ton of really, really high churches, uh, but we don't have a ton of churches where you wouldn't expect any vestments at all. Um, I, I know, when it, for example, when I was in uh, the Diocese of Birmingham, like there was one church that was, uh, basically Roman Catholic and there was other ones where it was kind of uh, indistinguishable from a mega church and literally everything in between. And I don't think we have quite that much variety in our diocese. Um, but could you just speak to, maybe we'll start with Rachel and then we'll, we'll go to Andrew. Um, like what you wear on a, on a Sunday. Uh, and if there's, I don't know, um, a special stole that you have that was given to you and that means something special to you. We'd love to hear about that too. So if I'm heading to church on a Sunday or any day when I'm going to be leading some form of liturgy, I'll leave my house wearing a shirt with a clerical collar on it. Um, so that's usually a black shirt or always a black shirt for me. There, there, You can get them in a variety of colors, but mine are all black. And it can either have a little tiny white tab at the front or it can have a white thing that goes all the way around my neck. Those are two different styles and uh, people have different preferences. There's pros and cons to both of them, but I'll be wearing that when I leave to get to the church. When I get to church, I'm going to put on my cassock. Now I could hypothetically wear that from my house, but practical conditions in Winnipeg around weather and also the <laughs> fact that they're very, very expensive and I don't want to clean it all the time <laughs> mean that I tend to enter the church and put that on, but I'll wear that um, from basically from the time I enter the church to the time I'm getting ready to leave, I'll have that piece on. And that's like a black coat. Uh, Andrew kind of described some of the different kinds, but it's a, it's a piece that kind of covers everything else I was wearing. So any, my jeans or my dress pants, like any sense of what's on, going on underneath, it's covered with that. And those can also range quite a bit for, for different folks from something that's very thin. If you're in a like a warmer client to climate to something thickly lined with fur, for example, to keep you warm in one of those big old Gothic kind of cathedrals that wasn't heated. Right. Mine's like kind of somewhere in the middle. 
Um, so I'll be wearing that when I'm setting up, talking to parishioners before and after church, all of that kind of thing. Shortly before the service is about to begin, I and all the folks who have a particular role in the service will go to the sacristy, which is a room where all of those kinds of things are stored. And um, at that point in time, I'll add a couple pieces of clothing. So I will put on a surplus, which we've already talked about. That's my baptismal robe. It's my thing that goes over the cassock, over the fur, whatever I'm wearing there. And I will put on a stool. And as I am now a priest, that hangs on my neck straight down the front of me. And it'll be in the color of the liturgical season. So the, what color? We're, we're recording this on January the 28th. What color are we, are we in right now? That, I don't, that's a good question, because I'm going to say we're in green, but I know sometimes, ordinary time, but sometimes people will say it's Epiphany Tide, so we're still going to wear white. Oh, okay. <laughs> what color are you wearing these days, Andrew? <laughs> well, uh, in the season after Epiphany, I typically wear green, um, but if, uh, if I was presiding at uh, a Eucharist today, which I'm not for a whole host of reasons, um, today is also the memorial of St. Thomas Aquinas, um, who is my confirmation saint. And so um, I might, if I was being self-indulgent, wear white uh, for St. Thomas Aquinas because um, he's important to me. That would depend on the custom and expectation of the community that I'm serving in. Um, in some places, that's a bigger deal than others. Um, but Yeah. Yeah, if you're honoring a feast or a particular day, you're gonna wear you're gonna wear something different as well. Um, so, but I, so I would be wearing a clerical shirt, a cassock, a surplus, and a stole. And in the church that I'm currently serving in, that's what I'm gonna that's what I would wear through the entire service. I would remove the stole and the surplus when the service was over. Stay in the cassock when I was talking to people. But in my congregation, I don't wear a chasuble. I don't have any additional pieces of vestment. I have, like, you know, other churches do. We don't. And in my church, it's also an expectation that I uh, purchased all of those things myself. So I'm actually quite grateful because those things can also become very costly. Um, at the beginning of my ordination process, I got a fair number of things secondhand, which was really helpful. Um, but in some cases, not as helpful as it could have been because some of the first few times I wore a cassock, people actually said to me, like, you don't seem very comfortable when you're preaching anymore. And I'm like, because this stuff doesn't fit. And I'm not <laughs> used to wearing it. So like I move my arms and there's all this extra fabric. And I'm grateful for the secondhand cassock that was given to me for free because I can't afford a new one, but it doesn't fit. And so I'm not like my whole body can't move the way my body wants to move and I'm not used to the extra layers of clothing. So eventually I was able to purchase a cassock that was made exactly for me and my measurements. And they're like, uh, I'm also um, a Benedictine oblate. And one of Benedict's values is that all the monks should have clothes that fit. And I get that, like there's a beauty in, this is actually like my size. My stools, however, are a range of things that people uh, made for me and gifted to me or purchased for me or are essentially hand-me-downs from priests who've either retired or died and passed on to me. So I have a range of styles and 
um, like all the colors, but also kind of a range of styles. And I'm not sure if you took me to a store and said, pick whatever you want, if they're what I would pick. But because they've been gifted to me by members of the community or um, they have a memory attached to them in some way or another, they're all very precious to me. But really shouldn't be thought of as mine, mine. It's, It's the clothes I wear when I'm serving the community, not an expression of Rachel's unique personality is how, right. is how I think of them. So do, do yeah. you have one stall that either is kind of the most unusual in terms of like style or, or whatever, or, or just has your favorite story attached? Just, uh, yeah. Yeah, just tell us about one of them that you, that you like for some reason. So I, I serve with another priest who has very, like very traditional sensibilities. So for years, my congregation was used to seeing uh, him in, in what I would call very traditional looking stools. If you've been in an Anglican church, you've seen that look before. And on my ordination, a group of people from across, across North America who I befriended at a conference and we stay in touch online, they all chipped in and purchased this, the green stool that I wear during ordinary time. And the first time I wore it in church, I got so many comments, partly because it's just beautiful and striking and partly because it's so different than all the stoles they'd ever seen Jamie wear. (laughs) So it just, it just stood out, but it's things that I value in the creation of vestments is it either needs to be very simple and inexpensive or it needs to ha- or the person who created the thing of beauty needs to be properly paid. Like mm. I don't want a sweatshop somewhere right. in like I don't want to try to get beauty but on the cheap. Like right. if it's honoring the artisan great or if it's very simple and inexpensive great. But right. this piece is made by they found the person on Etsy and it's a green felt and it's all cut out die cast kind of like a almost like a stained glass window. So it has, it has grapes and wheat and all kinds of imagery of Eucharist and church on it. And when you put it on top of the white stool, like the white underneath pops out all the imagery. So it's beautiful. And it was also this affirmation from this community I'm part of, of my role and a way of celebrating even though they couldn't be present. So for me, it's very precious. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew, uh, what what do you wear normally? Uh, I guess you've just started at a new parish, so I don't know if the expectations have changed there at all from what you were wearing at your old parish. But what 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 do you wear on a typical Sunday morning? Um, because of COVID, I actually don't have a good sense of what this community expects on Sunday morning. Um, I got to do in-person worship with them twice before we were back down to not doing in-person worship. Um, And even then it was, you know, you had to stay socially distanced. You couldn't talk to each other afterwards. So I have no idea what people thought of my presiding because they weren't allowed to tell me. Um, But um, typically um, I I leave the house wearing my clerical shirt with my collar, uh, exactly what Rachel described. My shirts are also all black. Um, and when and for I our, the- for our listeners, uh, Andrew is currently wearing his his clerical, and he's wearing the kind that just has the little uh, cutout in the front, not yeah. with the full collar on. Is that is that typical? Is that kind of what you wear all the time? Yeah, I have 
I have shirts um, that that take a, a full collar, the white all the way around. Um, but the the white collars that I have that go all the way around are made of cloth, um, and uh, they are in need of significant cleaning. So one of the things that happens um, in church at the end of the liturgy is when you stand and greet people and, you know, good morning and nice to see you and we'll have coffee, is sometimes you get people who want to hug you, which I'm generally not opposed to, but I am tall and many of my parishioners are not. And if they are just the right height, their makeup ends on my cloth collar um, and then I go home and I have eyeliner and foundation and stuff pressed into my cloth collar that stains it. The hug okay. is worth it. It just means that my cloth collars need a lot of cleaning and sometimes <laughs> it's a lot of work to get the stains out. That's all. It's, That's amazing. I think it's worth mentioning that for almost every thing that we do in the church in terms of vestments or ornaments or different things, there's usually some sort of theological or symbolic reason for why we do it, but there's also a practical reason. And sometimes we forget those. So um, when I first began to wear uh, clerical collars, I thought I would wear what's called the English collar that goes all the way around. I like the look of them. But I quickly realized not only my parishioner's makeup, but my makeup got on those. And they're so much harder to clean. And so like you take it off and you're like, this is this is not nice. Like nobody should see this. Like if there are women clergy out there or clergy who get hugged a lot out there who have like tips and tricks, like I welcome those. I would love to hear it. But I actually stopped wearing that kind of collar simply from a like a cleanliness standpoint in what I was able to take care of. Yeah. Um, and, and I should say, since we're talking about collars, that in this part of Canada anyway, um, the style of collar that you wear uh, doesn't seem to indicate anything about who you are other than a cleric. But in other parts of the world, the kind of collar that you wear does tell people something. So... For instance, if I were serving in a congregation in Mexico, I would never wear this tab collar because in Mexico, this means you're a Roman Catholic priest. If you are not a Roman Catholic priest, they expect to see the full English collar all the way around. And so it's important uh, if you're a cleric who's traveling uh, or serving in a new geography for the first time that you figure out uh, what it is you're telling people that you might not be aware of. Um, right. And and so just quickly, I don't know if we if we if anybody said this yet, but wh why do you wear a collar? Why do priests wear collars? Oh, um, yeah. So today, um, priests wear collars uh, as a way of being able to identify them. I, I always tell people it's the same reason that policemen wear uniforms. It's so that you can see the person and go, "Oh, I know what you do." and if someone needs you in that capacity, they can identify you and call upon you. Um, historically, this is just what educated professionals wore in the 1700s. And so clergy were educated professionals, so we wore white collars. It's a white collar job, right? That's the, ah! the thing. It's, it's the same thing, more or less, that uh, lawyers and professional bankers and people wore. Um, the collars and shirts looked different then, but the same idea. Um, and over time, uh, formal dress for men changed and the church didn't, which is 
pretty standard. So, so there's no like theological reason for a caller or? No, um, I sometimes hear them uh, uncharitably called dog collars because it's like you have a leash on. Um, but, but that's not a theological reason. That's usually people making fun of clergy and the church. Um, <laughs> One of the things I like about vestments generally and, and the colors of the liturgical season and those sorts of things is if you know how to read them, and generally speaking, we can do a better job of helping people know how to read these things and not making it like a secret code. But if you know how to read them, you can walk into a church and have a pretty good sense of what's going on without having to like ask a question or be able to read text. So the color should tell you what season it is, the type of clothing certain people are wearing should tell you uh, what kind of service it is, uh, who is the priest, the deacon, et cetera, et cetera. Um, What's interesting to me too is how some of those have changed over time. So like a lot of vestments were originally based on uh, basic streetwear in Roman times or servants clothing, like the lower of the low. And, and as the church has developed and we've added artistry and beauty, we've kind of shifted from being able to be signaled as the servant of all to the fanciest of all, which is not... I think what's meant, although I, I appreciate beauty and artistry in, in liturgy as well, but it's interesting how like, well, everyone wore a collar if they had a white collar job can shift to, uh, well, what does this mean now? And how do we understand these symbols today? Um, was it Mexico? I think Andrew was just saying like, if he went there, he wouldn't wear that kind of collar because he would be recognized or assumed to be an, a Roman Catholic priest. If I wore the little tab collar, people would maybe assume heretic or like right. she doesn't know what's going on because no woman can be a, a priest. So you, you do want to be aware of how do you understand what you're wearing? How are people around you going to understand what you're wearing and have some sensitivity to those kinds of things? Cool. All right, Andrew, I cut you off on this on this collar uh, tangent, but you were, you were just saying what you would put on when you got to church. Yeah, so typically um, on a Sunday, I wear my cassock more or less the whole time that I'm at church because for me, it's a practical thing. My cassock has a lot of buttons, and so it's easier to get into it when I have time to make sure that they're lined up properly. Um, and then it's just easier to leave it on while you're doing your morning. Um, my cassock, like the one Rachel has now, uh, was made for me, um, and so it fits really nicely, uh, but it means that I don't usually have a shirt on underneath it other than my undershirt. Um, I don't wear my clerical shirt underneath because I tend to run very hot most of the time, and, too and I'm going to have enough layers on in the liturgy anyway. I don't need to add to it, so um, minimal is good, and if I am doing your wedding outdoors in the summer and it's 35 degrees in Winnipeg, I am not wearing pants under my cassock. Um, it, it is, yeah, I've done that. <laughs> yeah, it's full length black wool. Nobody can see my legs and it's, oh, it's just not worth it. Um, so over the cassock, um, I wear an amice and an alb. Um, so the alb is a long white garment that is the sibling to the surplus that we were talking about, except that albs fit uh, typically much more closely. They, they're basically just a white layer that goes on right over top of your cassock. It's your baptismal garment. Um, but albs tend to have very wide necks because um, under them you wear a thing called an amice, which is basically a great big rectangle of white cotton 
that you put around your neck over your shoulders and tie up, and it goes over your alb so that while you sweat through the liturgy, the amice soaks up all of your sweat, and then you only have to wash this one piece. You don't have to wash the whole alb all the time mm -hmm. um, because your cassock and undershirt are busy soaking up the rest of your sweat. Um, so the white thing stays white because it's much easier to launder a dark cassock than it is a white alb and have it come out looking good. Um, so amices um, are... Now, theologically, the amice is the helmet of salvation because it goes on over and then covers all of your vulnerable spots, right? But practically, it's a really fancy sweatband around your neck. That's... And so, so wait, was, that, was that kind of one of those practical things in search of a theological rationale? I suspect so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how that evolved exactly, but I'm, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And then around my waist goes a cincture, which is a white rope belt. Um, there are lots of ways to tie white rope belts. And most of those ways, well, partly it just depends on how you were shown. Um, but it also depends on how you wear your stole. Um, so I'm a priest, so I wear a stole in the liturgical color of the day, which is the next thing that goes on. And lots of priests do what Rachel said, and they wear their stole open straight down in the front. I wear mine so that uh, the right side crosses over the left, uh, roughly the middle of my torso. Um, and so if you were looking at me while I'm wearing just my alb and my stole, it looks like I have an X across the front of me. Um, the reason that I do that is uh, a couple of things. Um, one, the X is the first letter of Christ's name in the Greek alphabet, so that's, and I like Greek, so that's nice okay. and symbolic yeah. and good things. Um, but uh, it was also tradition at one time when you were made a deacon and you were given a stole to wear. Um, so deacons wear their stoles over their left shoulder, diagonally across their body, hanging on the right-hand side. Um, and the symbolism there is that it's like a servant's towel hanging at your waist because deacons are the um the ordained um the icon for the church of servanthood right there this isn't a podcast about orders but that's yeah. what deacons symbolize in their role in the church so they wear a servant's towel because it reminds everybody that they're there to wash your feet just like christ oh, yeah right yeah like in the book of acts they're set up to be table servers basically yeah. so yeah makes exactly sense. yeah um so then uh if you were a deacon who became a priest you wore the same stole, you just wore it differently. So you're still wearing a servant's towel. It just takes on a different shape. So they crossed it over the chest to symbolize that as a priest who does sacramental ministry, you are yoked to Christ in a particular way. Um, so it's supposed to look basically like a dog harness that you see people walking their dog in, mm -hmm. um, or my neighbor who walks his cat in a harness. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, it's, it's that sort of thing, is that the, the priest is tied to Christ in this way where they wear the first letter of Christ's name on their chest. Um, that's a symbolism and a theology that really resonates for me, so that's how I wear my priest stole. Um, it doesn't work with every stole, uh, and so sometimes not, but in general. Um, and then the stole goes through the loops in my belt so that it doesn't flop all over the place while I'm moving around the liturgy. Over top of the stole... I, I should say a stole is a long, narrow, rectangular scarf that hangs around your neck, um, is, yeah. is all that is. Over top of all of that, 
Um, if it's Eucharist, I wear a chasuble, um, which is basically a great big poncho, um, typically mostly in the liturgical color of the day. Um, and uh, it just sits over top of everything. So you, you can see sort of just at my collarbone, the top, and then at the bottom of the chasuble, maybe the very bottom of my stole, but the rest of the time it's covered with this poncho thing. Um, and the chasuble tells you which priest is presiding at the Eucharist that you are at. Um, in most of our parishes, in Winnipeg anyway, um, if you're having Eucharist, there's probably only one priest in the room, so it's pretty clear who's presiding. But if you had a bunch of people up at the front who were all ordained, it's what Rachel was saying, so that you can read the room, you can look and go, oh, that one is going to be at the table when we get there. Um, and if, if the congregation doesn't know what liturgy they're coming to, it tells them, oh, we're having Eucharist because somebody's wearing the, the poncho. <laughs> would also would also where the priest is sitting i guess this would depend a bit on the church architecture but where the priest is sitting up at the front would that also give you a clue as to who's presiding and who is um kind of assisting yeah like first rule of liturgy the building always wins because it's there yeah. and you can't move it um so it depends on the building and the setup and how you're preside how you're doing eucharist in that community and all of that stuff um, but yeah, often there's a collection of three seats somewhere in the building, not too far from the altar, um, that are for the presider and a deacon and a lay person who is assisting at the altar. Um, and so if, if there are three people sitting there, it's a pretty solid guess that they're going to be the ones at the altar when that time comes. Right. Um, yeah, and I think that's all of the vesture that I typically wear on a Sunday morning. So with the chasuble, um, where does that come from? And does it have any kind of extra theological significance beyond just as an identifier? Yeah, so um, the chasuble comes from a really trendy piece of Roman clothing in the second or third century. It was the cool thing that everybody was wearing. Um, and, and so people wore it to church, and then it just stuck as the thing that the presider wears, right? Um, there's a, like a whole study to do on how the church appropriates fashion of the day, and then it ossifies in place and just never changes again. That somebody needs to do a dissertation. Um, so, yeah, it was now the ponchos that I forget what their proper Roman name was. Casula, maybe? Um don't quote me on that. I might be making it up. Um, Sounds right were, to me. <laughs> oh, okay. They were really big. Like if you held out your arms, the poncho went almost all the way to the end of your hands. And if you had your arms down, they hung down right to your ankles. Like they were a really big, and it was basically an overcoat. You wore it outside right. to keep the rain and junk off of you. Um but they became this indoor garment and a way to mark the people who were doing the thing in church. And so in some older rites, um, when the presider goes to hold up the chalice and the bread at the altar, you will see servers who reach down and lift up the back of the chasuble that they're wearing, which seems really silly because at that point, the priest is standing and the chasuble is nowhere near the ground. But 
if you back up 1600 years, the chasuble was so big and heavy because it was wool that you had to roll it up to your elbows so that you could do the thing at the altar. And by then it was so heavy that you couldn't actually lift the bread up over your head unless somebody was lifting up the fabric behind you because you like it's just too damn much wool, right? Uh, you know, um, that makes a lot of sense because I was once at a church, uh, nowhere near here. So, uh, but in the service booklet that they gave me, they had like this picture of the priest like this. And then like children with their kind of hands up behind. And I was like, this seems inappropriate. What is going on here? Why is this picture in my service booklet? But that makes a lot of sense. Cause that's clearly what they were doing was helping him like hold up his. Yeah. yeah so, that, over, so that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Over the centuries, the chasubles got smaller and smaller and smaller and lighter and lighter. Um, and so the, the weight was no longer the issue, but that ritual action of lifting up the chasuble at the time that the elements are elevated stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, that's, that's a thing. So yeah, it was just a big, heavy overcoat poncho thing um, that over time became smaller and smaller to the point where the Roman church in the, by the 1600s, give or take, um, is wearing chasubles that are uh, they look a lot more like aprons. They hang over your shoulders. They're kind of cut out in into the shape of a fiddle in the front to give lots of space for your arms and a rectangular panel in the back. Um, and so they, they don't cover your arms at all and they only hang down just sort of past your hips. Um, okay. And, and then liturg- vestment and liturgical history isn't this podcast, uh, but in the late 20th century, um, a lot of churches started reclaiming um, the vestments that we know about from the early church, so back to poncho-style chasubles, but they're sort of a manageable size and lighter material now. We aren't wearing full-length wool right. anymore. Right. Cool. Um, I guess what I would like to ask both of you now is, so this is what you normally wear. What is like, are there, is there a next level? Like, have you ever celebrated somewhere where there's yet another piece that you would put on? Or if, if you've never actually done that, what is kind of like the most out there piece of vestment that you've ever seen worn or worn yourself? And maybe we'll go to Rachel first. <laughs> well, Andrew's, Andrew's going to have more practical experience with wearing different things. But like two thoughts come to mind with that question. One is... One of the reasons that you wear certain pieces of vestments or clothing in services is because your church has them. Like there's a very Mm. practical element there. Like my congregation does not have chasubles. I cannot afford to wear them. I'm not going to wear them. But different churches will have histories behind various pieces that they have that they expect their priests to wear. So somebody from the congregation may have embroidered that they they have very storied histories and so it's really whatever role you have in the church um, doesn't have to be a paid role or a leadership role it can be really interesting to find someone on the altar guild or someone who knows the history of your church and just ask them to tell you the stories of the pieces in your congregation like who made them where did they come from why do we have these things it's really worth doing and i've had some really interesting conversations at various churches that I've helped out at where there was a group of women who all got together and they sewed all of these things and thought through the imagery embroidered on them. And those are great stories to know, especially mm-hmm. if that's the church that you're at. And so I would just recommend that to folks like find out 
where all that stuff came from and why you use it. It also means as a priest, you may sometimes be wearing something that doesn't fit you super well or that you're really comfortable in, but can be important because of the history and connection it has to the church. And there's various negotiations you can do with that. The other thing is we've talked briefly about uh, deacons and we've talked about priests. Um, I am not a bishop, <laughs> and, but I have helped like at services where I've supported the bishop as a chaplain or I've had a role like that in the service. And part of what you do is assist them with their vestments. Right. So um, I've, I've handled fancier vestments that I've worn. You know, oftentimes a bishop will come in wearing a cope, which is kind of like a cape. And when they sit down, they might, they might want to take that off. They might want to take, you know, they've got the hat and they've got the fancy stick and they, they, they'll take all of those things off. And so you're managing those, assisting them with putting on a chasuble if they're presiding at table and, and those kind of elements. So I've so seen would, some beautiful would they things. Like, would they like take off the cope and then put on a chasuble? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cope is, is, a, is a fancy coat. Right. Yeah. I've, I've, I've been the bishop's chaplain once, I think, but it was Bishop Don and he didn't really make much of a fuss. So I kind of like held his stick and that was about it. Maybe held his hat <laughs> briefly. Yeah. It's going to depend again too on the bishop and what they have and the practices of the place. Like these are all things that vary, but um, a cope is something you could wear at a variety of different events and a chasuble really should only be worn if Eucharist is going to be celebrated. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, Andrew, what, what is the kind of like next level stuff you've worn or have seen? Uh, I have, um, by virtue of the breadth of communities and traditions that I have served in, I can't think of a piece of Anglican vesture that I have not uh, either worn or handled and you know, somehow uh, seen employed in liturgy. Um, I'm sure they exist, but but not much. Um, the the thing about copes, just to follow up on what Rachel was saying, um, the thing about copes I like so much is that they are not technically liturgical vestments, which is to say that they don't tell you anything about the day, the liturgy, or the person wearing them. They their whole function is just to symbolize that the thing we're doing is worth decorating. Um, so they often come out for big feast days, important services, um, when, whenever you want to make a big deal out of something. Um, but they don't, they aren't limited to certain people who wear them. They aren't limited to certain occasions. Um, it's just sort of whenever the community decides that's appropriate, throw one on and go. Um, they, in now, in my experience in Anglican practice, um, in a parish setting, um, the priest, and if you have more than one cope, uh, the deacon and server at the altar might wear them on days like Christmas and Easter, like really big feast days. Right. Um, and if you're having a diocesan service, it's often the bishop and the archdeacons who wear them um, because they're important people and symbols of office and that sort of stuff. But uh, but that's local practice. It's not, um, there's no mandate about what right. you do with a cope. So a cope could be worn by people other than the bishop. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, but, but typically, probably in this diocese, that doesn't happen a ton, does it? No. Um, I mean, 
So I have a cope that was made for me uh, with, uh, with a stole when I was deaconed. Um, and the person who made it is a very dear friend of mine. Um, and the story behind the cope is uh, beautiful and wonderful. Um, and so I wear it as often as possible because, because I think it's just great. So um, I'll tell you the story now that I've dropped that. Uh, and the short version is this friend of mine um, is a fabric artist who sometimes makes vestments. And so somebody came to her and said, um, I have an heirloom from my family that we can't use anymore. Do you think you could make it into something for the church? Um, and the heirloom was a handmade full-length bridal veil from Belgium in the 19-teens that this woman had bought for her wedding, and then her daughter wore it, and her daughter wore it, and her daughter wore it, and they wanted to keep passing it down, but the, uh, the gauze in between the lace parts was starting to disintegrate, and so the veil was falling apart. So do you think you could make this into something for the church? So my friend said, yeah, probably. And then when uh, she found out that I was being ordained, she came to me and said, here's what I'd like to do. Let me know if you think this is a good idea. So she said, I'd like to make you a stole. And uh, she didn't tell me that there was a cope involved until she absolutely had to. So it was, it was a surprise. So the thing is made in a sort of ivory colored silk, but all of the lace that used to be on the bridal veil is now embroidered on the panel on the back of the cope and along the border of the cope and then onto the bottom part of the stole. Um, and so this bridal veil has turned into a church vestment that in her words, she said, so when you're celebrating important milestones with people like baptisms and weddings and funerals, your vestments will match what they're wearing because the church is celebrating with them. And this cool. tradition of this veil being in these milestones continues. And I think it's really beautiful. And, and I mean, the, the thing is a stunning work of art, full stop. I, um, I cannot fathom the number of hours that she put into picking all the lace apart and then sewing it back together. Like it's just insane. Um, so I wear that every chance I get because I wanna honor the gift. Um, some people think it makes me look pretentious, but I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, fair enough. Uh, yeah. Um, so copes, um, I have been, uh, in liturgies where I wore tunicles and dalmatics, uh, when I was a subdeacon and a deacon respectively. So tunicles and dalmatics look almost identical. Um, they are the equivalent, a dalmatic for a deacon and a tunicle for a subdeacon, most Anglican churches don't have subdeacons. It's not an order that we've had since forever, but in some places they still use liturgies that call for a subdeacon. So um, in most parishes, it would be the lay person serving at the altar, just with a different title and some different function. Anyway, um, they look a bit like a chasuble, except that they have arms sewn into them. So it isn't a poncho. It's kind of like um, an apron with short arms that doesn't quite come down to your elbows. Um, and they're decorated the same way, usually liturgical color and with all the things. And the only thing that differentiates the Dalmatic and the tunicle is uh, there's usually a row of bars of contrasting color on the back. Um, and the number of bars tells you whether it's a deacon or a lay person 
wearing it. That's all. And all they are is the, uh, is the equivalent of a chasuble for other orders in the church. So that, I mean, imagine a church where you've got a horde of priests and deacons and lay people up front because we're doing an enormous complicated liturgy. It just tells you who's going to be at the altar when we get to the altar. That's, um, yeah. Cool. Um, so I've worn those. Um, and like chasubles, they tend to be very heavy and hot um, because they're often heavily embroidered and, and hang down. I've never been uh, a priest in a parish where you wore a maniple, but I have served in parishes where they were normal. So a maniple is a strip of cloth that the priest wears on their left forearm, usually down at the wrist, that hangs. Um, and it is also a servant's towel. Um, so the vesture gets complicated enough that the stole no longer resembles the servant's towel. It's under a million layers. So you put another one on, on your left arm, just like a waiter's towel in a fancy French restaurant. Yeah. Um, to remind yourself that you're a servant in the middle of the liturgy. Um, that's a thing. And I have seen and worn many strange hats um, in liturgy. Yeah, hats. Hats was something I wanted to ask about because we talked about the bishop's hat. Yeah. Uh, which I think is called a mitre, am I right? Yeah. Um, but this was something I don't think we knew much about uh, in our episode was, was hats. Uh, we just kind of knew that there was a thing called a mitre and then, but I knew that other hats existed. So if either one of you want to, want to feel, uh, do, do either of you ever wear hats? Uh, I guess, Andrew, you said you have Rachel, do you ever wear a hat in church? I do not. Uh, well, uh, randomly now to lead worship online, I sometimes wear like headbands and hats because I'm in a desperate need of a haircut that is not being allowed to happen. <laughs> so Which not a liturgical not, hat. <laughs> No, it's not. Well, maybe now it is. I like real hat. It's not a formal thing. No, I don't have a lot of experience with ha wearing hats. And I think, like, I'll let Andrew actually explain what a lot of them are. But again, some of this has to do with um, how culture has changed and what hats mean and don't mean and that kind of a thing. But also, like, the practical expense side of somebody has to pay for all the fancy things if I'm going to be wearing fancy things. Now there's practical clothes, like I would love a cloak not uh, for when I'm outside at a graveside and I have access to that kind of stuff to keep me warm. But uh, no, I'm uh, at this point in time, I have been hat free. <laughs> so Andrew, <laughs> tell, tell us hat about- Hat free except, since 93. Except yeah. holding a mitre, like assisting a bishop. Right. So, so uh, Andrew, tell us about so, yeah. hats. <laughs> yeah, Andrew, maybe start with the mitre and just like what that symbolizes and then go from there down the, the ranks of hats, if you will. <laughs> yeah. So um, a bishop's mitre is, uh, is a hat that's uh, kind of shaped like the, the blade on a spade. Uh, it goes up and then it curves to a point at the top. Um, and they are intended to symbolize the tongues of fire from the Acts of the Apostles on the day of Pentecost, uh, because bishops are the successors to the apostles. So right. um, you want to look like St. Bartholomew or, or whoever your favorite apostle is. Um, also in, um, in the early church in that Greek and Roman context, um, people who wore hats in ceremonies were important people. Um, just like people who got chairs to sit in, in big ceremonies were important people, which is why in most of our churches, there's a special chair for the bishop um, and if you think back to, say, the fourth century, 
there weren't any other chairs in the building. So the guy sitting down was a really big deal because he got a chair. Um, nobody right. else did. So, so some of these are, are symbols of office as well as theological uh, and practical considerations. Um, so bishops mitre, uh, mitres are often in liturgical colors, but not necessarily depending on uh, the bishop wearing them. One of the advantages to being the diocesan bishop is that you get to set the rules about what's normal in your diocese. So whatever you show up wearing is the right thing because you're the bishop, right? right? That's, uh, anyway, um, so that's a bishop's hat. Um, sometimes some bishops and some priests um, underneath their other headgear wear a little silk skull cap that sits at the back. Um, it can be in different colors. Bishops sometimes wear purple, priests wear black. Um, they're called zucchettos. Um, and uh, the, the idea is just, uh, as far as I know, that it's respectful to keep your head covered uh, in the liturgy when you're in the presence of God, um, other than certain times in the liturgy where you take it off because, um, because taking your hat off is also respectful um, of what is happening at that moment in the liturgy. Um, so there are hats called berettas, uh, which are not guns. They're spelled slightly differently, um, which are a, uh, sort of square-ish shaped hat, um, that has, uh, they're called horns, but they look like little blades that stick up from the corners and go into the middle. Um, and then there's usually a pom-pom that sits in the middle. Oh, yes, um, I've seen those. Yeah. yeah and the... The coloring of the beretta usually mirrors the coloring of the person's cassock. Um, so if you're a priest, your beretta is probably all black. Um, if you're a canon, where your black cassock has red trim on it, you might get a beretta that has a red pom-pom, um, and so on. It, just different ways of extending that. Um, Berettas historically are part of the academic dress of the University of Bologna in Italy, which was one of the first European universities to offer theology degrees. I think um, it was the first European university, actually. Yeah. Right. Uh, so there was a period in church history where if you were an educated priest, that was your academic gear. So you wore it to church because you wore your academic gear in church. Um, and then over time, it just became a priest's hat because that's what priests wore. Um, the Northern European version that developed somewhat later, we call a Canterbury cap in Anglican land, um, which looks almost like a, uh, a high school graduation mortar board, like a flat four pointed thing, only it's floppy and made out of felt. It, isn't, it doesn't have a, an insert to keep it stiff. So basically the floppy hat that Martin Luther is wearing in that picture of Martin Luther that is everywhere yeah. when Martin Luther comes up is basically what a Canterbury cap looks like. Oh, okay. Um, it often has a button in the middle to keep yeah. the, the thing together. And, and a I've seen a lot of different universities, like, like when you get a PhD, you, get, you often get a hat and yeah. like a lot of them look something like that. They've got the kind of the floppy flat kind of thing going on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just different, different evolutions of headgear in different parts of Europe. Um, and then because for most of history, clergy were university educated people, they become part of clergy wear because all the clergy wore them. Right. right. So, similar to why like hoods are often a big thing because you get a hood with graduation, right? Yep. Yeah. Hats, oh, okay. are, hats, are, hats are also just generally 
something that in previous generations, previous, you know, hundreds of years, uh, people wore hats, like outside you wore a hat, men yeah. wore men wore hats. It's sort of interesting that, you know, men often are told to take, like even now, like take your ball cap, cap off inside because it's disrespectful, but I can wear my hat the whole time and it's not disrespectful. So like there's, there's just a whole culture around when it was common for everyone to wear a hat and, and what we understand hats to mean too. Now. Yeah, we, we seem, at least in, uh, at least in this part of Canada, we seem to live in a, like a strangely hatless era. <laughs> like like just nobody like you barely you barely wear hats at all except like when the weather absolutely requires it it's it's such a it's such an odd thing but um, yeah i i will add that i do not own and do not typically wear liturgical hats um partly because i personally uh find them fussy um it's it's one more thing for me to do in the liturgy and i don't I don't find the symbolism particularly meaningful. Um, the community that I serve right now has no tradition of priests with headgear, so that would be strange for them. Um, also, I have a very large skull, and even finding a toque that fits me without sliding off my head is a challenge. So, um, as Rachel was saying, liturgical clothing tends to be very expensive, and I can't fathom what trying to get a custom-made Beretta would cost for, like, I, I just don't value them that much. Well, maybe if you're named a, a canon or a bishop someday, I'll have to, like, make sure to get you a, a custom Beretta as a gift. <laughs> Something really fancy. Well, you know what? This has been great. Uh, we, we've gone over an hour now, um, and I'm sure we could probably keep talking about vestments until kingdom come. But I think this has been like a great introduction to like some of our experiences with them. Uh, I've loved kind of the, the great mix of kind of like practical insights about clothing and the kind of the history of the theology of it. Um, as, as somebody who grew up like uh, where we would sing, come as you are to church all the time. Uh, this is, <laughs> this is such a, this is such a new world to me. And um I, at some point, if I continue on towards becoming a priest, I, I guess I'll, I'll have to invest in some of this stuff. So I might be hitting you up for where to get these things on the cheap. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much. Joanne, do you have any, do you have any last remarks or questions that you've been holding on to? I just want to thank you guys so much. This was the best um, time I've had in a long time chatting with people about church clothes. I don't get many takers on those conversations. So I just want to thank you both <laughs> for indulging um, this nerdy Anglican kid that grew up. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, thank you. Uh, it's been fun to chat with both of, with well, all four of you as well. And thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's, no, this has been great fun. Thank you for the invitation. Um, and like, I'm always up for a nerdy church conversation. So that's great. Well, maybe we'll have to have you back on for some future topic. Uh, thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, you can check us out on all the major podcasting apps and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at From the Narthex. Uh, until next time, take care. Thanks for listening. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, please leave a review and rating on iTunes and tell your friends.